1 Corinthians chapter 15. I am so excited about this morning's message. As I was preparing it this week, I just want to share this with you. I know that ever since we connected with some people about the prayer meeting on the 20th, that there's a whole group of people praying for me. And as I was preparing um, on Thursday, I was putting some final things together. I was in the office and I was just weeping. I just felt like people were praying for me. Have you ever had that? I was just, and I was, I was as I was going over chapter 15, which is a three Sunday error, three Sunday error, or how do you say that? Three Sunday, a triple, triple dip. Anyway, um, I began to weep and Pam walked in the office. I said, Pam, people are praying for me. And she said, I know I can feel it too. And let me tell you, in this time, I've been connecting with some of our pastors in our area. Church attendance is an all-time low in our area. It is pastors, ministers are suffering. Like, it's really hard. You know how difficult it's been for us even to get the church painted. It's, offerings have been low. We, we just, and attendance has been low. And, but I believe that God wants to do something you see, when things look the darkest and they seem the bleakest, that's when God tends to say, hey, now that you're done being in the way, <laughs> Larry, now that you're out of the way, Larry, I can do something. And I'm trusting God for that. So I pray today, if you're watching online, yes, if you're here in the room, those of you that are sharing this environment, this is special being here, by the way. We sense that. We can feel God's presence. As we were worshiping, man, Worthy is your name, Jesus. I mean, it's just like, oh, God, I feel your presence here. But if you could pick 10 chapters, the top 10 chapters from Scripture, that would be the top 10, I would think Psalm 23, Psalm 51, Galatians 5, Romans 10. Roman, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would be among them. This chapter has 58 verses and is jam-packed with so much good doctrine and encouraging words and real challenges for us to rise to that Paul has strategically put it to the most outlandish group of churches, church that he could ever give it to in Corinth. But they are such words for us today. And it is, it, is a, it is a chapter of promise, of hope, filled with good doctrine. Uh, it talks about eternity. It talks about the rapture of the church. It talks about so many things, and we're going to get into it. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word... I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So Paul isn't saying that their faith was just pretend. He isn't saying that their faith was just for show. Rather, he is saying, hey, I, am your, I was your pastor. I planted this church. I won you to Christ. He stood on the street corners and he preached Jesus amongst this very heathen culture filled with prostitutes and drunkenness and all kinds of wickedness and he but what he is saying here is that their faith is in the very real resurrected Jesus he is reminding them of this fact and friends this is an important fact for us to be reminded of today he's setting them up 
to affirm them that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. And he's saying, hey, the thing that you believed is not something like a fairy tale. In fact, when I read this in the New Living Translation, it's a little pithier. Verse 2, he says, It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Considering the, the very pagan culture that surrounds them, and the, he, he affirms that Jesus is indeed the real deal that Jesus did rise from the grave. Not to be confused with all the Corinthian gods that are out there, all the other gods that are promising so many things. It would be like me saying to you today, yeah, Jesus rose from the grave, and your faith is real. It's real. Not like the powerless, demonic, other gods in our culture like addictions, or fairy tale things like Bigfoot. They have places that sell Bigfoot hunting merchandise. Did you know this? You can hunt for Bigfoot. You can really do this. It's uh, Santa Claus. Yeah. It's like believing in Santa Claus. He said, hey, all these other things are real, not like boy bands or, you know. <laughs> he, he's saying, hey, all... What you have believed is real. They have the same power to save you, not like your false gods, America, of pornography or alcohol or drug addiction or the biggest god in the church today, the god of comfort, just to be comfortable. It's not like any of those false gods. The real resurrected Jesus is what you believed in, and he is the one that really indeed did rise from the grave. An, imp an impossible physical opportunity did happen. Friends, faith in Jesus as a self-resurrected king is, is a faith in one who has all power. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, get this, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it says that Jesus died for our sins. Now that's good news. This is really what he spends his time on. At the end of the service, we're going to be receiving communion and worshiping for this very fact. And I believe that God is going to minister and touch our lives in this place as we partake. But Jesus died for our sins. He is reminding them of this. I mean, they know it. This is the foundation that he laid down. He says, according to the scriptures, the scriptures to the early believer was, in this church, the Old Testament, right? So what the Bible talks about some things here. Paul writes to them about the resurrected Christ and, or the death of Jesus and that he would be in the ground for three days. The scripture talks about these three days and we have to ask ourselves if we were like them in their time they would have the old testament right they wouldn't have all the information we have so i'm sure that he uh, he is talking to them jesus in fact quotes jonah in, in matthew chapter 11 verse 20 he says for as jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights so will who 
the capital S, Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. They knew the scriptures. They understood this. And Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. Psalm chapter 16, he's referring, he says, according to the scriptures. So what's he using? He's using scriptures like Psalm 16.9 or 16.10 that says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or, or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. He's not talking about David here. This is a specific reference to Christ. Psalm chapter 22 is filled with Jesus. Just read, it talks about them betting on his garments, right? Talks about him being pierced in the side. There's so much detail in Psalm chapter 22 that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And here we have Jesus dying in like fashion. Isaiah 53, of course, who can ignore it, right? For he was wounded for our transgressions. Brutal, right? Bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. In verse 10, it says, But it was the Lord's good plan, the Father, to crush him and cause him grief. Why? For our sake. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many Pete's and Larry's and Dale's and Jim's, many descendants. Jesus was going to be put in the grave. He was going to put an end. He was going to be a victor over sin, death, and the grave. You know, Daniel chapter 12 is another great reference. In the latter part of verse 1, starting there, it says, But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Interesting reference. We have the book in Revelation as well. Um, that way before Jesus, way before Revelation was written, verse 2, uh, many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and ev everlasting disgrace. This is where Paul's going. He's going to be telling them about Jesus' resurrection or death. He's going to be talking about our resurrection from death. Verse 3, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. In fact, the Bible says, Paul brings him to this point, says, for Jesus died according to the scriptures. The picture of the suffering Messiah and the death of the Messiah is paramount. It is something that your Jewish friends cannot answer. The death of the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the messianic prophecies concerning the Christ. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and this is an incredible thing that God gave his life for us this way, that Jesus gave his life, that he died for us. I mean, what love. What love that someone would look at you just like you are and say, hey, you're pretty pathetic, but you know, I love you anyway. I care about you anyway. Even the Bible says, even for someone who's righteous, someone might possibly die, but not really. In other words, who in the world is going to give their life like that? Who in the world that doesn't even know me? I mean, I could see for my children or my wife, maybe some of those are close to me, but somebody that doesn't even know me and that I am against him, the scripture tells me that while I was still against him, he loved me. While I was still in my sin and doing whatever I wanted, he was still loving me. Even though I was, I was pathetic and ugly and used and abused and did whatever I want, God still loved me. God demonstrated 
demonstrated his love toward me in this, the Bible says. While I was still in my sin, Jesus loved me. And that's the same news there is today. Jesus still loves us, even if we are in our sin. If you are in your sin right now, God still loves you. And don't get me wrong, he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to pull you out of it. But it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you've done. His grace is sufficient. You can't run out of it. It's not like you, you go to the cookie jar and there's no more cookies. I have this problem often. I have this shelf above my refrigerator that's hard to reach because I'm tall. Filled with chocolate. And once it gets to the last chocolate, I'm out and I just, I'm suffering. I say, you know what, Pam, don't we need to buy some more bread or um you know, I think we need some vegetables or something. Uh, my real purpose is going to buy chocolate. That's, the, that's what I'm doing. But while I was still this way, I mean, what a wreck I am. I look at my own self and I know myself. I know my thoughts. I know my motivations sometimes. I, I know the temptations that I go through. I know what I was like when I was younger, my fits of rage. I know the awful things that I have said and done. I know what a wreck that I am, even this day. And yet I can't acknowledge, I can't not acknowledge that God loves me. And that sense that God would love somebody such a wreck like me says that he loves anyone for such a worm as I. It reminds me of that. In fact, let's sing this together. That song, Come to the Altar, has its little part. It goes, Oh, what a Savior is any wonderful. Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. Bow down before him, for he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen. Jesus died according to the scriptures. Verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Paul uses the facts of history here and these appearances to help affirm their faith. Friends, we need this, don't we? You need the scriptures to help affirm your faith. And Paul reiterates them in truth, and he says, be encouraged in this fact. Jesus died for your sins. Not only that, he was witnessed alive afterwards. He does this to remove the confusion that they may have to, with the pretend saviors in their culture. This was laughable to the Greeks. Okay, the Greeks did not consider Life after death is something to be grasped. It was ridiculed and made fun of. The Jewish sect of the governing council, the Sanhedrin, in fact, didn't believe in the resurrection either. They, they were some spiritists type of people. I mean, I always tease because the Pharisees believed, but the Sadducees didn't. That's why they were sad, you see. 
That's how can you, how can you remember it? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, 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 they pushed it aside. But here, Paul is saying, wait a minute. We have seen Jesus alive. We have seen him risen from the grave. More than 500 people then to Paul himself. You know, and he lists James here as one of them. There are these three James, right? James, the brother of John. James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there is James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? So Jesus is born by the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Joseph and Mary have normal husband and wife relations. And have, he has brothers and siblings. And one of his brothers is James. And we know that his brothers didn't, want, didn't believe in him, right? I mean, they, they were until the resurrection, so I'm like, I can imagine like James hanging out and Jesus like showing up, yo, little bro. And he's like, whoa, he's alive. I mean, that would transform your thinking, right? I, wait, wait a minute, this is my half-brother. I mean, he teased, we played soccer, you know. I pushed him down the soccer ground and Jesus stood up and said, I made you. Here is this incredible transformation the church in Jerusalem, ultimately, James became the pastor, the leader. I can imagine this. Like, boom. His happened like, boom, I'm here. Your little brother, whoa, yeah, okay, I believe. Perhaps one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection. This is why I'm going through some of these. It's very important. I know sometimes we do these on Easter, but I love this. One of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, I would say among the top five, is the ferocious nature of the disciples after he rose. Who in their right mind would continue to preach this thing after the guy had been nailed to the cross? In fact, they were in hiding at first until the Holy Spirit kind of kicked them, kicked them out. They were in the upper room, but they got kicked out of the upper room by the Holy Spirit. This is good for us, but we won't go there. The power of this is what? The power of it is the fact that they had seen Jesus alive. And what kind of nut job, what kind of wing nut would go out and willingly have himself martyred like all of them did, all but one? Well, who would do such a thing? Who, who would be like Peter and refuse him to his death and, as legend teaches us, was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified upright like his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What kind of person among us sitting here would say, yeah, uh, I'm going to go ahead and let them torture me, burn me, crucify me, kill me, behead me, whatever that it is, willingly, and given the opportunity to renounce Christ and still not do it just to save your life. Why? Because they had witnessed something that had never been witnessed before to this stature. They had witnessed a, a marvelous thing, an incredible thing. They had, they had witnessed the resurrected Christ. I mean, that alone is a great testimony of the witness of the, of the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, this is the privilege we have today for us. We have the privilege of the indwelling Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will tell us about Christ 
to reveal the power of Jesus' death and the reality of his, resur of his resurrection to give us hope. This is our hope today. So friends today, if you came into church perhaps a little downcast, a little down in the frown, got some of that stuff going, I want you to know that your hope is in resurrection. This life isn't it, like old, that old preacher Evie Hill. Anybody used to watch Evie Hill? That old preacher Evie Hill. Brothers and sisters, this ain't it. <coughs> I can't say it like he did. <coughs> this ain't it, he, said, he would say. The story of Jesus echoes in our world today. He is the most important figure of all time. More than 2,000 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, in attempts to crush the church and to force out the message, the old demons that tried to do that through Titus, scattering Jerusalem in 70 AD, from the various persecutions of the church and the gospel witness and the stifling of the word of God to the people through the early Catholic church movement and dominance around the world, the time of the Middle Ages where Christendom seemed to be all but lost because Satanism and, and satanic leaders, the same demon then was in the same demon leadership that was in COVID. They told churches to close and not gather. The same old faces back then that was in Elijah and or, um, Ahab and Jezebel that tried to crush out the word Elijah. The same demon is alive today. And yet what happens? The news of Jesus continues to grow. In addition, at the time of Jesus, the Jews had been persecuted for uh, 700 years. 700 years by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians who took over the Babylonians, by the Persians now, and now by the Romans. They had suffered persecution. The Greeks outnumbered the Jews 100,000 to 1. And the church is a small substrate of that 1%. And here's Christians, and pretty soon the Greeks are starting to catch the message, and pretty soon Jesus is drawing people together uh, in such a way that it could never be possible, Greeks and Jews together. This, this is a testimony of the power of the resurrection in the culture in the time. Greeks and Romans, many Jews scattered and their lives taken captive by all these other nations, but yet Jews still remain. And why is that? Because the things that make Jews made them Jews were carried through. They, kept, they never intermarried. They kept their national identity. And the power of it all is Jesus, is Jesus. They had seen the risen Savior. You know, they had so many things Another qualifying power of the witness of the resurrection of Christ is this. Catch this, friends. This is really good stuff. All of these points are, they're excellent things to tell your Jewish friends about or people. The evidences of Christ. Why would any nut jobs, that's my number one, why would they choose martyrdom? Were they just all just craziness? We know that they weren't. They could just quit and go on back to fishing, right? Everybody likes fishing. Maybe not then, but that was work, right? They had seen Jesus, but some of the other things that happened, 1,500 years of traditions stopped almost immediately. 1,500 years of things, the zealots stopped their pursuit in trying to instill a Messiah. Why? Because of the resurrected Jesus. 
immediately after Jesus, um, the, the, all these things that they had been doing, they stopped doing animal sacrifices. They stopped offering sacrifices almost immediately after Jesus' resurrection. The keeping of the Sabbath changed dramatically. The church dramatically. All these things happened almost immediately after Jesus resurrected. Verse 9. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, can you imagine the guilt he must be carrying because of this statement? He was out after Christians, rounding them up, killing them. They were, they were a threat to Judaism. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it was I or they, we preached, and so you believed. I'm not going to deal with his statement, worked harder. That, that's his thing there to them. But nonetheless, he's saying there's something here. So here's Saul. Jesus reveals himself to him. That was his name before it became Paul. So his name is Saul. He, he's on the road to Damascus. God reveals himself to him. And when we remember who he was, when Jesus appeared to him, it totally transformed Saul's life. He had, a, he had an encounter with Jesus. People need an encounter with Jesus today. When I was a young man, I would often pray, and I would sense God's Holy Spirit. Even as a child, I would feel God's presence and him speak to my heart. And I've, I don't know how people live without that. People need Jesus today. There's a... A popular atheist, was born, he was born like in the late 1880s. He died in 1950, but his name was Frank Morrison. He was a, he was a lawyer, and he was so tired of the, the gospel message and Christianity in America, and he set out to, Frank Morrison set out to um, disprove Christianity. He figured there were two things that would do it for sure. Two things, if you could discount the resurrection, if you could undermine the resurrection somehow, and if you could undermine the conversion of Paul. That was literally his big approach, those two things. And so Frank Morrison set out on a study journey. He began to interview some different ones, and he, on his study journey, he gets radically transformed and becomes a Christian because he can't answer these questions. He can't answer his own argument. In fact, he, instead of the book that he was going to write, disbunking and dismantling Christianity because he could disprove the resurrection and he could confront the conversion of Paul, rather than doing that, he wrote a book, he, he wrote, he wrote a book called Who Rolled the Stone? I mean, it's often referred to by contemporary apologists, you know, um, Frank Turek is one and others, but the fact that Jesus rose again changed everything. It changed the world. Um, the good news is that if it's preached, the word completely preached, the good news still changes lives. It still does that work. Us gathering here today, last week we, got, we talked about, you know, what is a woman and the, how Paul talks about we prayed for women. I thought there was some beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit, the altar, and, and I, I praise God for that. The bottom line, though, is that Jesus died for your sins. And he rose from the grave. That's the good news. That's the good news. Verse number, 20, verse number 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So here it is. So he's hearing this. 
His news is coming in. Some of you are saying, hey, Jesus did not rise from the grave. And so, as he does consistently so far, he's dealing with another issue in the church. And I mean, if some of them don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, why bother, right? There's no bother. So, without Jesus raising from the dead, the dead, it's a sad story with no story. I mean, the defeating death of Jesus on the hill of Golgotha means he just died for our sins. Well, where's the victory in that? I'm glad but because he rose from the punishment of our sin, the Bible says the punishment of sin is death. And Jesus defeated death. You see the correlation? The, the significance of the resurrection is that he defeated sin through his resurrection. That death is no more. That's, that's the hope of the believer. Sometimes in this world we act like that this is it. You know, we walk around all day, we go to our job 9 to 5, or 7, or 5.30 to 3, and we go, hey, you know, this is life. I got to do this over and over and over. And this, oh, I'm shooting for this thing because I want this lazy chair and I want this vacation and I need this new bike and I need this, I need this and that. And, and so we go after and we go after and we pursue it. And these are the things that bring us happiness. And the whole time Jesus is saying, hey, I've got something. It's just me. It's just me. I'm the God that will meet all your needs according to my riches and glory. And so he has to deal with them. Look at verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if it's good for him, ha ha. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Wow. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Oh, my goodness, and they know better. He's getting after them right here. He said, you know this, come on. Some of you are saying you didn't rise from the grave. Why are you saying this? Verse 18 then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, there's no hope beyond the grave. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. In other words, we're following something with no power. We're, not, we're here in church today, or we're doing what we're doing today because we're following Jesus, but there's no power. Jesus didn't rise from the grave, so why are we even gathering? Do we believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Man, if we really believe that, if you were beside the grave and you saw him pierced in the side, you saw him on the cross, you saw him brutalized that he was, bleeding profusely, his, his heart, they had to die on the cross. That's why they pierced him with the sword to make sure he was dead. It, the other two, they didn't have to. They broke their legs and they died by asphyxiation because they couldn't push up to get a breath. But Jesus was dead already. He was already gone. He was already dead. You saw him dead. You saw him wrap him up in the stuff. Couldn't breathe, even if he was alive. He was dead, bloodied mess. His flesh hanging like ribbons from the beating. The torture and shock that his body endured. All the things upon the cross that Christ did because he was thinking of you and I. All the flesh that he allowed his to himself to go, all the fleshly pains he allowed himself to go through. And we look at that, and we realize it's the reason that we're on mission. 
It's the reason why we gather. It's the reason why we believe that there is a healer. It's the reason why we believe that one day we will not all sleep. As he says at the end of the chapter, we're going to get there. But we will be raised in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the trumpet sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we who are alive and remain are going to join the Lord in the air. But he says here, if none of that happens, you're pathetic. He says, we're pathetic if it didn't happen. Why would we believe in Jesus if he died taken on our sin only? It would be like saying, oh yeah, when you die, that's all there is let alone living for Christ. And that's what he says, actually, in the verses that we're going to get to next time. He says, basically, he says, if that's true, why not just get drunk and be merry? That's what he says. He says, if that's true, let's just go party all the time. But if it's true that Jesus is not raised, hey, let's take advantage of this life in every way you can. Sleep around, do whatever you want, do every drug you can, go to all the things. Go everywhere else except with God's people because you believe that there is a holy, righteous, and good God that loves us. A just God that will help us. A powerful God that will save us. It's useless, he says. Our faith is useless. Jesus isn't risen from the grave. It's useless. The, the world should pity us. The world should pity us if Jesus did. In fact, they should pay for our counseling. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, they should pay for our counseling. The power of this is not that Jesus only rose from the grave. People have come back to life before. I mean, God raised others from the dead, the Shunammite woman's son, Right? He, he raised her, uh, him from the dead. Jairus' daughter, he raised him from the dead. Lazarus, by this time, Lord, he stinketh. King James. He stinks. He's been in there for four days, Jesus. I mean, he's dead. Roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. And this man who had been dead three days walks out of the grave. Eutychus, I mean, it's like some of you, he fell out of the window of the church while Paul was preaching, sleeping. Fell asleep during the sermon. I can see you dozing off. I can. <laughs> and what happens? Paul goes down and raises him in Jesus' name. There's contemporary testimonies as well in our modern culture. I'd, I've looked up some, and there's, they're out there. You can find them. Um, powerful things. Or, one man was dead, had been taken to the morgue, and the, uh, the, this particular preacher came to the church, Reinhard Bonnke, and he was presenting ministry there, and they told him about it. So they went to the funeral home, and he prayed for the guy, and the guy <laughs> sat up and said, man, I'm hungry. I don't know what to deal with that, but, you know, things like that have happened. There's testimonies of them around our world, but Jesus died differently. He died not from sin, but because of sin. He, he died for our sin. Right? And the difference is he didn't raise to die again. He rose forevermore. We took all of our ugly and we nailed it to the cross with Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He raises to new life, a new hope, new purpose. Greater. A great future with him. Verse 20 <clears throat> But in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus, in other words, Jesus is the first of a great multitude to rise. He's the first fruits from the grave. That's what it's saying there. Not the first to be resurrected from the dead, we know that, but the first to be resurrected from the dead for all eternity. It's a different raising from the dead. Praise God for that. Never to be resurrected again. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Uh, Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection from the dead. So Adam came first, and because of his fall and his sin, death comes. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we will be made alive. But in each his own order. Christ, the first fruits then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Adam's legacy is death. His legacy, through him came the fall. So through Jesus comes life, comes resurrection. We might say, well, just because Adam blew it doesn't mean I have to share in that mess. Well, Scripture pretty much bears out the fact that you would have done the same thing. That if given that opportunity, in fact, here a while back I did a memorial service, or I was part of a memorial service for a guy I did not even know. And his mother had been raised in Nazi Germany. And being raised as a young girl in Nazi, she was trained in Nazism, right? It was ingrained. She didn't think she was doing anything wrong. Because in her setting, in her country, she didn't realize what was happening. Because the environment was so conditioned toward this fallacy and lie and hatred and murderous, hideous bigotry, she didn't know. She thought it was good. They did their Hail Hitlers and she did it. She thought that was just as a child. And so Adam is in this environment. This is what he knows. Uh, Even Adam, mankind fall. And they take us with them. We are mankind. It may not be fair. Man, I think it's fair. But you don't have to die in your sins either. That's not fair either. Jesus died for you. Verse 24, let's finish this up. Then comes the end. He delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must begin, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy... To be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in his subjection, it is plain that he is uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be in all... Now we're all confused, right? So... God sends Jesus to earth. Jesus bears our burden, bears our sin, and has this victory over death. And Jesus has this tremendous inheritance who will all come to him in the name of Jesus only. Will we be saved? The scripture says, in his name alone there is salvation. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that that inheritance that Jesus has done, that God has done, that God has accomplished, the Son will present it to the Father. 
He will have this victory, and it is given as the will of God through the word of God, the will of God the Father, the word of God Jesus, the ways of the work of God the Holy Spirit, as, this, as they work together to bring all things, especially the final one, death. I think a lot of Christians walk around like death has not been defeated. We're afraid of death. We do, we do all we can to keep, I'm not saying we shouldn't be healthy, but man, chocolate is good. Uh, we, we should do all we can to be healthy. I, I still believe pizza's great. It's a point a man wants to die and then the judgment. So have some more. I'm just kidding, of course. But the idea is that, that maybe we fear death too much. Friends, I got to tell you that, that this is our blessed hope. This is the reality of things. The, the power of this is that Jesus has defeated death. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to worry about dying because you're not intended to live just a little while. You're intended to live forever. You are designed for that. Oh, got to get into that more next week, next time. Jesus, the only first root to rise from the grave, will submit to the Father a victorious creation. The last thing to defeat is death. He defeated every rule, every authority. He defeated every power. All the enemies are under his feet. Paul says, quoting Psalm chapter 8, all the enemies are under the feet of Christ, and then he will destroy death. So in summation, I would say, confessing Christ to believe that he rose from the grave is power. It is a belief. Because Jesus rose, we believe, and because we are his, that's what uh, salvation is. We belong to someone greater than all that is in this world. Because we are his, we stand in his victory. I think a lot of Christians are praying for victory. Christ has won the victory for your salvation. He has won the victory over death and the grave. And I like what 1 Peter 1, beginning of verse 3 says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ just emphatic right there. Wish I could emphasize that enough. He's giving this big praise to God. He's saying, bless God. He says, bless God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. Not something that's going to fade. Not a trophy that's going to go away with its accolades. Not a diamond that you're going to lose in the vacuum cleaner one day anyway. Not anything like that. It's going to be something eternal. It's something precious that Christ has won. He says that is imperishable. It's not going to wither or die. Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why does Paul rehearse the simplicity of the basic resurrection to them? What good is it for someone who has been a Christian for so many years? I mean, the church was founded on this idea. Why would he have to say it again? I think because, friends, we need to be reminded that we have hope. In fact, that's what Paul writes at the end of the chapter. He says, encourage one another with these words. We don't grieve for those we have lost. Life is filled with pleasures that squeeze us. 
most significantly to the church in Corinth and to us today, don't forget the hope you have in the resurrected Jesus, that he is alive. And that good promise is for us today.